Hey, I'm really, I am happy you're here wherever you're at in your own spiritual journey. We're in a series we're calling uh, Foundations. And through the summer months, we're looking at the earliest creed that the Christian church developed. It was written somewhere about 226 AD. The word creed uh, comes from the Latin word credo. Credo means I believe. And so what this was is before the Bible was formulated, before there were printing presses, uh, they decided it's important that we write down some of these core essentials in a way that people can memorize them and then internalize them and they can repeat this credo, I believe, and here are the statements that we believe. And so we've been looking at that. Here's what we're going to look at this week. We're going to look at two thoughts, one very briefly and then the other one more in depth. The uh, thought that one, Jesus resurrected from the dead. We're going to look at that briefly, not because it's not important. It's of utmost importance, but we're more familiar with that. Uh, but we will focus our attention on the second thought, which, and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean for Jesus to be ascended into heaven? Here's our question. Where is Jesus today? Where is he? Okay, I heard heaven. Yeah. Okay, we got lots of different answers. Yeah, yeah. So depending on traditions, people would say different things. Let me just We'll just broadly look at some of the traditions. Um, Jehovah Witness theology would say this, that when Jesus uh, resurrected, his body didn't, only his spirit, so his bones are buried somewhere. And then his spirit resurrected, but his spirit returned in 1914. And uh, now through the Watchtower Society, he's ruling and reigning. His spirit is ruling and reigning here on planet Earth. Yeah, that's how some would answer this question, where is Jesus today? Uh, Muslim tradition, about a billion people are Muslims. They'd say that his bones are buried somewhere and his spirit resurrected. He's now with Allah. Um, Mormon tradition. Mormon would say this, that his bones are buried somewhere, only his spirit resurrected. And now this is the destiny for all human beings. Be He's on a planet somewhere and he's married and he's populating that planet. That's, uh, that's, that's paradise for someone, which... I always think, and you know, and I, I don't know a lot about Mormon tradition, but I always think it sounds better if you're a guy than if you're a lady. Um, perpetually being pregnant, populating a planet. Uh, I watched my wife be pregnant four times. Never seemed real easy. Like, <laughs> eternal bliss. Another one. <laughs> okay. Uh, so there are all these different traditions. But let's take a minute and, and look at this whole idea of where Jesus is today. What does it mean that he's ascended? I'm going to ask you to do something. It might be a little uncomfortable, but it's for a purpose. In just a second, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to picture something, okay? All right, so look around. The person you sitting by looks really sketchy. You might want to partially close your eyes. No, you can trust them. You can trust them. So close your eyes. Would you do that? And I just want you to imagine Jesus. Jesus. When I say Jesus... What image, what picture comes to your mind? Okay. I'm, I'm going to ask you perhaps uh, what that was to you, what that looked like. And there's no right or wrong answer, so don't be embarrassed. How many, when I just said picture Jesus, the first thing that came to your mind was a, a crucifixion scene or a crucifix, Jesus hanging on a cross, how many of us would say that's, that's what came to mind? Okay. Who else? Okay. Yeah, a few of us. Um, 
which is a very important, poignant image, right? But the image is pretty consistent. It is a suffering Jesus spread out on a cross, emaciated, broken, right? looking as if, boy, he's been through it. And what that reminds us of is this price that he paid, that he died in our place, a very important picture. How many of us had a picture of a Jesus who is like, he was quite handsome and maybe had really nice blonde hair, a little feathered, blue eyes. And you know it, but he looks far more Caucasian than he did in reality. Really tranquil eyes. How many of us had that kind of white surfer Jesus dude picture? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's not bad because what, what does that speak? It speaks of, boy, peaceful tranquility, this kindness. When you see that imagery, it's, it's very kind. Okay. That was a lot of us there. Now, here's the image I have in my mind, and I think it's from a piece of art that I saw. And it's, it's Jesus as a shepherd, and he's got a lamb across his shoulders, and he's holding a staff. And when I think of Jesus, that's the imagery that pops into my mind, that idea of the shepherd. How many people had that kind of image? Yeah. And there's something powerful about that. It speaks of a God who loves people, who goes out on rescue, who, who wants to stay connected. He's a protector, all of these things. So all those are pictures, and maybe you had a totally different one, and all those are fine. They're fine. But I think they're deficient. They're not complete. They're not everything of who Jesus is. In fact, we probably have limited who Jesus is today and what he is doing today. So that's why we're going to focus on the ascension and we're going to ask the question, where is Jesus today and what is he doing? Because most of our thoughts have to do with what he did on planet Earth. So you can look in your notes. It's on the Bible app or if you grab notes, you can grab them on the way out. Just a bit about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul says, listen, if Jesus didn't, didn't resurrect, Everything we're doing is in vain. And Jesus was no more than a martyr. Okay, He talks about how important the resurrection is. Let's look at the creed now. And we're going to read through it and we're going to focus. I'm going to ask, actually ask you to join me when we talk about the ascension part. This is the old Roman creed written about 226 AD. I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was born from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried. You join with me. On the third day, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Let's talk about the ascension of Jesus. Here's the timeline. Jesus dies, he's buried in the grave for three days, then resurrects. And he resurrects, and it's very interesting. It's peculiar. We're not even sure what to do with this. But he has a real body, okay? He eats multiple meals with his disciples. But it's not like this body, although, fascinatingly, he still has the nail marks in his hands and his feet and where the spear impaled his side. He, he offers to let Thomas see those marks. So it's the same body, but it's different because he can just kind of show up in a room, but he doesn't fall through the floor. He's not a ghost. He can eat a meal. They recognize him. In fact, for any of us in the room who are over 40, this really sounds good. Like, 
a new body without aches and pains. And see, like right now, you you were you were designed to be an eight-cylinder Ferrari, and currently you're running on one cylinder. The others are scorched and you're blowing smoke. It's just like right. One day we'll have this new body. That's what Jesus had. Okay, he's he's absolutely resurrected. Now he appears to his disciples for a period of 40 days. 40 days, but it's sporadic. They never know when he's going to show up. He dialogues with 500 different people, and then he ascends into heaven. We'll read about that at the very end of our time together. So when he went into heaven, what did he, what did he do? What's his, what's his modus operandi? What is he involved in now? Here's what we're going to talk about. Number one, I would like to just cover this. Jesus' current reality. What is the reality for Jesus right now? What is Jesus doing? His current reality. We're going to go to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. It is a book filled with imagery and metaphor. And it is going to give us a really interesting picture of Jesus that as we read it, it's going to be a bit different than the mental image that we had just a few moments ago. Revelation chapter 19, we'll begin at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. Okay. And every Western who rides the white horse. The good guy. Yes. Yes. The good guy whose rider is called faithful and true with justice. He judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. Now, have you ever had anybody look you in the eyes and there was something about their eyes that made you uncomfortable. Um, I, there's a retail place I've been a few times, and uh, there's a gal that works there, and she must have colored contacts because I've been in, and she's got like yellow eyes. They're kind of cat eyes. I'm like, whoa. And I've been in, she's got green eyes. And I'm like, it, it, like, I don't even look her in the eyes. It's just kind of weird. Like, hello, yes, ma'am, thank you, right? <laughs> this is Jesus, and he has eyes. It blazes like fire. He has many crowns, which signifies he's won victory after victory. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. It's a mystery. Something about who he is. And what he has done and it's written on him. And for all you teenagers out there who have been looking for a reason to get a tattoo, you can now tell your parents, Jesus has a word written on him. Okay? My boys are going to love this verse. They're going to love it. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Okay, it's not his blood. And you just know, anybody who accessorizes their outfit with blood is tough, right? I didn't need a necklace. I just accessorized with blood. It was a sign that he's a victor. And his name is the word of God. This word logos in the Greek John identifies him as the word of God early at his birth. It's this truth. It's this ultimate reality of who God is. 
the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, fine, white, and clean. So he's not alone. He's not alone. As John sees him, here he comes on his white horse, and the armies of heaven are following him. And what colored uniform are they wearing? White. White. How many, how many armies wear white uniforms? Maybe like the Finnish guys. You know, they ski through the woods and in, in the snow. But you don't wear white uniforms for multiple reasons. One is because you stand out. Two, if you're scared and you wet your pants, everybody knows it. Okay? Right? And it shows blood. You wear something to blend in. These guys are not trying to blend in. And they're not worried about staining their uniforms. They are coming with this king, majestic Jesus, riding towards this battle. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. Uh oh, here comes another tattoo verse. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this imagery here, he's treading the wine press of everything that has frustrated God, of human oppression, of diseases that we face, all of this. He is treading, smashing the grapes, all of this brokenness he's making right. This is an interesting thought right here. Um, this was written approximately at the time that Nero was the emperor of Rome, a man who was obsessed with power, obsessed with himself. And he, and then later an emperor that would follow Domitian, they, they never went to war. They stayed at home in, in Rome, but they had scabbards made that were strapped to their thigh. And on the scabbard of their official emperor weapon, it said Lord and God. They identified themselves as Lord and God, divinity and the highest king. And here we read on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written king of all kings and Lord of all lords. Now, this is a bit different in terms of imagery from the Jesus that we typically have in our minds, huh? This isn't just the white surfer dude, Jesus. This is a cosmic ruler. So there are, there are two thoughts. There are two thoughts that I think we have to hold on to. They're both very important. The first one is this. While on earth, we saw Jesus in his humble incarnation. Okay, so we've been talking about this. It's, it's the Jesus that we read of in the books that chronicle his life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's this humble Galilean. It's this marginalized man who actually is killed by the Roman government, but who cares for the poor and the oppressed and has this heart of compassion. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's very, very important. It's very moving. But that is one part of who he is. The second thought, which we need to hold on to simultaneously, is that he is also gloriously exalted. What we just read about in Revelation, that's part of who Jesus is as well. The two go hand in hand. The first one, his humble incarnation. It shows us how to live. It inspires us. The second, this tells us who we worship. 
This is who we worship. So, I wonder if there are times in my life, wherever you're at in your own spiritual journey, maybe my prayer life just seems a bit empty. It seems passionless. Or my worship. Maybe it's through singing or it's the way I work. I just, I don't feel inspired to worship God. Could it be, could it be that I am familiar with the humble Galilean incarnate Jesus? And he's a little bit difficult for me to pray to because he, he looks so mellow. It looks like maybe he's listening to an Elton John album. You know, that, that Jesus, that peaceful, tranquil Jesus. What if my imagery of Jesus is that he's riding a white horse and he's making his way to earth to destroy everything that's broken and ugly and painful that causes sickness and disease and division in, in humanity. And behind him is an army dressed in white. When I pray to that Jesus, that changes things a little bit. When I sing to that Jesus, it changes things a little bit. It's just not an incarnate man. It is also someone who is gloriously resurrected. I would challenge us. That one of the things that the early church fathers thought was important is that we just didn't have this imagery of Jesus as a technon, as a worker with his hands who lived for three years and was pleasant and kind and loved everyone, but that he also was ascended on high. That's Jesus' current reality. He's both. Let's talk secondly about this. Jesus' accomplishment. What did he actually accomplish? Why this imagery that he ascended to heaven and now he's seated on a throne at the right hand of God? What did Jesus actually do while he was on the planet? Let's read from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. The author has been talking about this ancient practice that the Jews have been involved in. It's the sacrificial system. It's taking lambs, goats, doves, and it's helping human beings to deal with their sense of sin. This is what he says. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. And here's the problem, which can never take away sins. They couldn't eliminate sins. What they could do is deal with my guilt. But that was it. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever. Those who are being made Holy, what did Jesus accomplish? Interestingly, this idea, this, this phrase, sitting at the right hand of God is mentioned 95 times in the New Testament, 45 times in the book of Revelation. Culturally, this meant something to the people who read it in the first century. Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father. Here's where it came from. The Roman government, charge of the world at the time. So the emperor would take what he called one of the sons of Rome, his generals. And he heard, oh, there's a problem somewhere in our empire. Let's say Germania. Often 
there were uprisings. So he would call one of his generals in and he would say, I need you to bring about the Pax Romana, Romana, the peace of Rome to Germania. So he'd send him with supplies. And this journey would typically be two, three, four years. This general would leave Rome with supplies, with soldiers. They'd identify where the uprising was. They would squelch the rebellion over a period of many, many months. And then they would eventually make their way back to Rome. And here's what the emperor would do. The emperor would set up a chair on his right hand. And to celebrate the return of this Roman general, there would be a banquet. And he would invite the conquering general to have a seat at his right hand. And when the general sat down, that meant the war was over. The problems had been completely and totally dealt with, that there was no more battle, mission accomplished. And so over and over, when the New Testament uses this language that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, it means this, the war is over. The battle has been completed. There's no more penalty for sin. There's no more suffering. There's no more angst between God and humanity. Everything that could ever be done was accomplished on the cross. And so Jesus is done. He's done. And I love this part. And now what's he waiting for? He's waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. What's that? One of the things that the Roman generals would do is he would take from the leaders of the people he conquered, he would take uh, the most precious gold, he'd take the king of that, of that nation, and he would pull these items together as a gift for the emperor. And the emperor would slide them under his feet as they ate at the banquet table as a sign of, look who's under our feet. Ultimate victory. What is Jesus waiting to put under his feet? How about sickness and death and human hatred and racism and brokenness and pain and everything that corrupts and hurts human beings? Jesus is saying, I won the victory and sooner or later it's all going to be under my feet, absolutely conquered, no longer dominating human beings any longer. Victories complete. I'm a pacer. Anybody, when you get worried, do you pace a little bit? Um, plenty, plenty of my kids' sports games. If it's close or I'm worried about my kids, I'm just not a guy who can sit down. I'm just, I'll pace a little bit. And you're trying to, all right, this is going to be okay. Jesus isn't pacing. <laughs> He's not worried. It's done. See, Religion, religion, this is how you'd spell it, do, D-O. It's about do more, try harder, try to make God happy, keep going, be better, clean up your act, do, 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 do. What we read here is this is what Jesus says. He says, you spell it D-O-N-E, it is done. It is done, it is accomplished. Everything that needed to be dealt with was dealt with on the cross. Jesus' accomplishment is total and it's complete. Thirdly, after Jesus, what he accomplished, also like to look at his authority. 
well, where is Jesus now and what kind of authority does he have? Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has died, been buried, resurrected. This is one of these times when he's appearing to them over this 40-day period. He brings his disciples to him and he says this, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that's a really big phrase. All authority in heaven at a cosmic level and here on earth. Wait a minute, I thought Rome was in, in power. No, no, Jesus says all authority, you can't get any more in heaven on earth has been granted to me, it's been given to me. So what's Jesus gonna do with this authority? Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Here's what he does. He divests his authority into his followers. What happened on the cross gave me all authority. And now here's my plan. I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to set up an empire. I'm not going to create uh, some castle where people would come. I am actually going to take my authority and divest it into my disciples' lives that they will now go with my authority and begin to change the world to complete the mission that I had begun with them. It's like a game of chess, okay? I'm not a very good chess player. In fact, the other night I got beat by my sixth grade son. Um, have you ever been in a chess game though where like you're doomed, all you have left is your king and they have like seven pieces left and you can spend a long time just moving your king one check, 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 check. That can go on for a really long time before checkmate, right? What we read here is Jesus has all authority. It's check, like game's over. And one day, it's going to be checkmate. And you knock all the pieces over. His authority. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. We read this. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to, God, to the glory of God the Father. Now, here's part of the problem with this whole phraseology, okay? The New Testament writers weren't just saying that Jesus was the God of the Christians. He wasn't just Lord of those who followed him. Here's where it got really sticky. Here's where persecution started. Remember, what was the name on his thigh? King of kings and Lord of lords. This proclamation is that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't just for people that trust him, but he is Lord of lords, that he is king of kings, that he is God of all gods. And that's where people got offended. Like the Romans would say, well, well whatever, believe whatever you want about him but he's not the Lord of Zeus. And then Christian church said, actually he is. And they'd say, take that back. Leave our God alone. These proclamations about his authority were so incredibly powerful. Now, lastly, I want us to look at Jesus's activity, his activity. So this idea, he's resurrected, seated on a throne. What is his activity? What is he doing? Because it's been 2000 years since this happened. So how many of us would say, well, 
Jesus must obviously be in retirement or some sort of semi-retirement because he's been sitting on this throne at the right hand of the Father for a couple thousand years. It seems like maybe you'd get a little atrophied or a little sore after 2,000 years sitting on a throne. Well, here's the good news. Jesus isn't in semi-retirement. It's not like, hey, you know, 500 years from now, he's like, okay, better get back to him. He's been active the whole time. Let's just look at what three different things the New Testament says that Jesus is currently doing in his ascended state. First, he's instructing and empowering his disciples. He's instructing and empowering his disciples. So he's not disengaged wherever the throne room of heaven is. But in Matthew, excuse me, John chapter 16, we read really clearly that he says this, when I'm gone, here's what I'll do. I'm going to send you the spirit and through the spirit, I will be teaching you and I will be empowering you. So Jesus is actively involved in the followers that he has of instructing them, teaching them and empower them. He doesn't leave them alone. He is fully engaged with his church. What else is Jesus doing? He's interceding for us. This one is a little bit odd, but let it seep in. To intercede means to, to pray for. We have two places that tell us this. First is Hebrews chapter 7. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Think about this for a moment. He always lives to intercede for them. In the midst of whatever is happening in your life, in the midst of whatever pain or tragedy, I mean, it's good to know people are praying for you. But what is Jesus doing? He's interceding for you. He's, he's believing in you. He's, he's saying, you can get through this. I'm going to give you courage. I'm there for you. Those moments where we feel alone, part of what Jesus is actively doing is interceding for us on our behalf. And then thirdly, what is Jesus doing? He's mediating. He's mediating. Mediation is kind of a strange word. We really only use it in legal situations. You say there's two parties and they, they can't find a resolve. There's this tension what happens, a mediator comes in the middle, right? And tries to find common ground, tries to work out some sort of deal, use it in business, or uh, even in the midst of divorce, there can be mediation. We're told that one of the things that Jesus is doing, part of his activity, is he's mediating. First Timothy 2.5, we read this, First Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. So here's the two parties God and mankind that needed mediation. And who is it? It's the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So one of the activities of Jesus in his ascended form is he's defending me. He's, he's making sure that everything is okay between you and your creator. He's saying, actually, they don't, they don't need to be judged for that because I took care of that on the cross. They're in me. There's no opposition. There's no hostility because he's mediating. So this Jesus, what is he currently doing? 
He's empowering. He's interceding for, and he's mediating for his followers. That is just a strikingly beautiful picture of what God is doing. So I want to conclude by reading the actual ascension. Okay, this is Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. So after 40 days of being with Jesus, and you know they have a million questions, this is what happens. After he said this, he told them, go and wait, and I've got a plan. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. So, you guys know this full solar eclipse is coming up in a few weeks? Yeah, anybody going to like to Wyoming to watch it? We are. Yes, you are too. Where we are, everybody, like, like Wyoming's going to be filled with people going. I remember there was like a partial solar eclipse when I was a kid. And it was such a disappointment because... Like, I thought we're going to see this, but all we did is poke a hole in like a three by five note card and shine it down. And like, you saw the shadow. I'm like, yeah, bummer. That was not exciting. This one's going to be sweet though, isn't it? Yeah. So they're staring up at the sky. I mean, Jesus just disappeared. All these questions, where are you going? What are you going to be doing? We just read. I'm going up to intercede. I'm working on your behalf. There's nothing else for me to do. I have accomplished everything that needs to be done. So it goes up to heaven. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white, oh, white uniform. Who are they with, right? They're, They're with this Jesus dressed in white, stood beside them, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? I would have answered, because uh, we just saw Jesus go up into the sky. Like, doesn't happen every day. We're just staring like that was pretty cool. They said, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So as I was reading this, I thought... Here's a real temptation. From this creed, he resurrected and he ascended. Vitally important. There can be a tendency for his followers then to just kind of spend their life doing this. Oh, you come back. It's terrible down here. People are mean. Like, Jesus, we're waiting. I mean, that's one option for his church, right? Just wait, hurry. But I think there's always going to be a voice that's going to say, uh, what are you staring at? Oh, don't stare at where Jesus was. What did he tell you to do? Hey, do you know that the reason he went up is so that you could go out? He's empowering. He's mediating. He's interceding. He's standing there for you. He is actively engaged so that you can continue his mission here on planet Earth. See, the church, if the church ever just sits around staring like, come on, we missed the point. Because he's up there so that we can go out. Will you take a moment and pray with me? Lord, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that 
my image of who you are is not sufficient. I have a, a preferred image that I want to superimpose onto everything. But the problem is, is it's just not big enough. You are not just the good shepherd. You're not just the, the Jesus who died for us on the cross. But you are also the one who is glorious and ascended and rides on a white horse and is coming back to fix everything that is so terribly wrong. Lord, would our view of who you really are expand? And then would our prayers expand? And would our worship expand? God, would we realize that the reason you ascended is so that you could work through us. So every day, every day, the ascended, resurrected Jesus Christ is mediating, is interceding, is empowering. Lord, would we realize that your position means everything's been accomplished and now you're working through us. Keep your eyes closed for just a moment. I want to make an invitation to anybody. And maybe as we're reading these texts, you realize, oh, he's seated because he took care of everything that's broken. Oh, oh Jesus isn't against me. He, he fixed everything so I could be at peace with God. He's my mediator. And now you're at this moment in your life, a very important juncture where you'd say, it's time for me to trust him. It is time for me to surrender to him, this resurrected king. And it's time for you to join in and say, he is indeed king of kings and lord of lords. If today is that moment for you to surrender your life to Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something. You need to be bold. You need to be brave. I just want you to wave your hand and catch my eye and say, Nate, that is me. Today, I am surrendering my life to Jesus. Yes, one, two, three, all three of you, four of you, yes. Listen, you're new men, you're new women, you're made new in him. He loves you com completely. Yes, I see your hand absolutely. You're his daughter. He loves you, forgives you. Yes, sir. You're his, you're forgiven, you're loved. Right here, yes, absolutely. And here in the front, right here, yes, sir. Yes, sir, you're his. New day for you. Anybody else catch my eye if I'm missing you? Over here, yeah, absolutely, up top there. Anybody, yeah, yes, ma'am. Hey, you're his daughter. He loves you completely. Anybody else? Yeah, right over here. Okay, absolutely, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am, you're his daughter. You're loved. Beautiful, beautiful. Hey, everybody, would you, would you just applaud for a bunch of people that made a terrific, life-changing decision?